Welcome. I'm Gracie. And I'm Kelsey. Welcome back to Closing, Closing in. in. Today we have a special guest with us, Giselle. Hello. Snap for Jizzy. Today I have the honor of being the listener instead of the storyteller. So this is our second episode. We hope you like the first one. And Gracie, the floor is yours. Before we get into it, let me just go over the case sources. So our case sources today are WalesOnline.co, TimeToast.com, The Herald Scotland, Goodreads.com, The Times Newspaper, and AllThingsCrime.com. Also, before we get into the episode, I just want to mention that this is a pretty gruesome one. So I'm going to put a trigger warning. Today we're discussing underage victims, necrophilia, dismemberment, and we also get into some pretty gory details. So if any of these are an issue for you, uh, you should come back for our next episode. Are we ready? Ready. Yes. Okay, let me set the scene, okay? It's late at night in 1978 on December 30th in North London. Stephen Holmes, a 14-year-old Irish-born boy had just spent the earlier half of his night at a pop concert before finding his way to the nearby pub. Unbeknownst to Stephen, who had just been denied a drink from the bar for being underage, he was being watched by someone else at the bar. The other man was a Scottish-born 33-year-old named Dennis who had been sat at the bar drinking his day away. Dennis invited Stephen back to his place on the premise that he had plenty more alcohol at home and they could go back and share a few drinks together. That's giving Jeffrey Dahmer vibes yes. already. 19 years older. And it's funny wow. you say that because I'm about to give you a little intro in a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> and so, being the 14-year-old boy he was, Stephen accepted and the two of them made their way back to Dennis's flat on Melrose Avenue. Where, as Dennis promised, he brought up the alcohol and they began drinking together. It's so interesting. So, 19-year difference between yeah. them? Like, we would never in our lives never. I know. do that. Would you be even 14 no. and at a bar no. anyways? No, cannot. And I wouldn't even leave with, like, an 18-year-old yeah. at 14 yes, years old. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> as you may suspect, things took quite an evil and sinister turn when Stephen got back and had drank so much alcohol with Dennis that he fell asleep. Dennis laid beside Stephen all night, and in the early hours of the morning, went to his room, grabbed a necktie, and strangled the sleeping Stephen to death before dragging him to the bathroom and drowning him in a bucket of water. Oh my god. This would later be known as Dennis Nielsen's first victim. Nielsen, who is dubbed the UK's Jeffrey Dahmer, was a horrible serial killer and necrophile who murdered at least a dozen young boys and men and another seven who he has bragged of killing multiple times, yet no bodies have ever been recovered. For our listeners who might not know what necrophile is. It's having sex with a dead body, right? Correct. Okay. (laughs) So fucked up. Oh my god. Like, ew. Yeah. Poor guy. Have you guys heard of him? No. Yes, a little. You have? A little. Okay. A little, a little. Again, not... I don't know a lot. 
I didn't even know he was in the UK. So we started this story in 1978, but I'm going to jump back quite a few years to talk about his childhood. Um, Nielsen was the middle child born in November 1945 to Elizabeth and Olaf. And by all accounts, Nielsen's childhood was marked by a good mix of happiness and tragedy. He was known as quite an adventurous child, but he was also very quiet, and he often has spoken in later years of his cherished memories of family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings. It's also worth mentioning that he had a very close relationship with his grandfather. So his grandfather was like his like role model in his life because his dad was kind of absent. Okay, and his mom? He was close with his mom okay. too. Okay. But because of this, when Nielsen's grandfather died when he was only five years old, the impact on him was profound. He started, like, withdrawing from his family activities, and he started, like, growing resentment towards the rest of his family, especially, like, his older brothers and sisters. Also, during, while he was growing up, he grappled with his sexuality. So he discovered when he was a preteen that he was gay, and he kept it hidden from his family and friends his attraction to boys led to a very troubling episode for him where he sexually fondled his little sister oh my god and then later on he said like oh no that's just because i care about her like a boy yeah disgusting he said that's how i'm showing i care like a guy two grades older than me did the same thing to me when i was younger my god does not mean you can do it to your siblings no yeah but also goes to show like the kind of effed up like upbringing that he had like so even his older brother like started noticing and teasing him that he was gay and he used to bully him in front of the whole school and would often call him hen like little chicken little girl chicken So, life in the small town of Stryken, where Nilsson's family moved, became really hard for him as he started to grow up. As I mentioned earlier, he started really resenting his family after his grandfather passed. Like, he would call his family poor, said that they had, like, no ambition to improve their situation, and that he just wanted to, like, get away from the rest of his family. But, like, what was he doing? That's what I'm saying. He was 14. What is he? Also poor. And he was 14, too. Like, So because of this, he was left seeking an escape from his family and ended up actually joining the army at the age of 14, seeing it as kind of like a pathway to a different life for him, like better than the rest of his family. After he returned from the army, and as he was growing up, he continued to really struggle with his identity and felt like very isolated. Um, everyone who knows him said he was, like, a very much a recluse. Like, he didn't like to hang out with other people. Um, he always had different jobs, but he never kept them, and he really struggled to, like, have deep connections with other people. Probably because he was, like, hiding a whole half of himself. And especially in that time, like, it wasn't really good for you to come out at all. Yeah. And later on, with his interviews with the police after he got caught, he talked a lot about how he harbored a lot of shame and guilt about his true self. And he even admits that he thinks that this burden 
of secrecy would only grow over time as he got older, and it would set the stage for the dark path that he later took. Between 1973 and 1987, Nilsson actually had a job as a police officer. This guy was on the streets like that? Yeah. Okay. And a security guard. Oh my god. But this was just too much for him, and he says it didn't have the camaraderie of the army, so he took a position in the public service where he stayed for the rest of his life. Thank god. If he had stayed as a cop... Oh, yeah. Now we're back in the 70s, and it was during the summer and fall of 1973 that Dennis Nielsen regularly started going to gay bars and engaged in several casual relationships with other men. He even actually had a boyfriend for a short period of time. So they met at a pub and quickly moved in together into a flat on Melrose Avenue in 1975, But the relationship quickly fizzed out when, within a year of moving in together, they were already sleeping in separate beds, and they were both bringing home other people to hook up with and stay with them. Okay, so they were roommates. Yeah. Yeah. And they were roommates. (laughs) Three years later, in 1978, Nelson actually kicked his boyfriend out of the house and was back to living a solitary existence. It was then, at the end of 1978, that Nilsson took the life of Stephen Holmes, his first victim. And I don't really want to get into the heavy details because Stephen was only a child, but let me just say that strangling and drowning was not the only thing that Nilsson did to Stephen. We'll talk later on about Nilsson's weird sort of ritual that he would do with the bodies after he killed them oh my god i'm so not ready for this story (laughs) so not even a year later he met kenneth ockton in a west end pub kenneth was a 23 year old tourist from canada who was to join nelson on a tour of london the next day As he does, Nilsson invited Kenneth over for some drinks where he later strangled him to death with a pair of earphones as Kenneth listened to music on his couch. Nilsson recounts that he dragged the dead body across the floor of his flat to the bathtub with the earphones, took them off, poured himself a glass of rum, and continued to listen to music on said pair of earphones. Like, this man enjoyed it. Yeah. He wanted it to last. Isn't that so And he, like, admitted to this. Like, he was like, yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. I'd be be embarrassed. Exactly. 100%. Another six months passes, and Nilsson meets Martin Duffy, who he met at a train station. Martin was only 16 years old and had just run away from home. He had been, like, spending the last three nights sleeping at this train station, like, outside. He told his parents that he got a job in London and he took a train there. But he didn't actually have a job. Aw, that's good. So, for a third time, Nelson meets Martin, offers him a meal and some alcoholic beverages back at his flat in Melrose, and unfortunately, Martin accepts. Shortly after, 16-year-old Martin falls asleep, Nelson strangles him to death and then drowns him in his bathroom sink. As I mentioned before, he has 
a ritual. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah. What he does after he strangles them, sometimes they don't die just from strangling them because contrary to popular belief, it's actually really hard to strangle someone to death. Like, yeah. you can't just... You have mm-hmm. to have really good force. Yeah. As we learned in the last episode, you probably have to break their hyoid bones. Hyoid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So sometimes they're not fully dead, but they're just unconscious. So Nelson drags them to his bathroom. Then he would undress them, bathe them, shave their legs, shave their face, dry them off, put some makeup on them, put them in his clothes, and destroy all of their belongings that they had on them in front of them. Like, in front of their dead body. Like, if they were wearing jeans, start ripping them up just staring at them. It's like that he's his own mannequin. Like, he's dressing so up. weird. Wow. This guy is weird. Not mm-hmm. only that, he would then prop them up around his house, like, in suggestive positions. Yeah. Sometimes at his dining table, on his couch, watching TV with him, in his bed. And he would take, like, Polaroid photos of them. And he would sometimes, like, fondle them, caress them, kiss them. This guy, like, genuinely, like, is not born normal. No, not exactly. Absolutely sick and disgusting. Like, you don't learn this. No. During your life. You're you're born messed up. Exactly. From the get-go. Disgusting. After seeing Dahmer on Netflix and then this, it's like, how can two people be the same? Like, there has to be something wrongly wired in their brain. Like, nobody just does that. No. Disgusting. So, following this latest murder, Nelson began to kill with increasing frequency. And before the end of 1980, he had killed a further five victims and had attempted to murder two who escaped. One of these victims was 26-year-old William Sutherland. He was the only one of those five to ever have been identified. Like, they still have not been able to the find the one. bodies. Oh. And he won't tell them? Like, he's so... He doesn't know. He doesn't even know, know what their names no. are? No. Oh, the guy just my blanked God. out. He was just meeting people, telling them, come back to my place, I'll have drinks and alcohol. And then they would drink together, and he would kill them. Wow. So it was like a one-night stand that he definitely never saw again. Exactly. Yeah. So, this is seven people that he killed... In, like, three years. And as I mentioned, which I don't know if you've picked up on, but he lives in a flat. Where do you think these bodies are going? Any guesses? Either in, like, a dumpster? I would prefer in the garbage. Yeah. In the garbage? So he's going to bring them down the elevator of his apartment building? Like, you know... He has been... Wrapping them in plastic and putting them under his floorboards. What the hell? In his kitchen cabinets. Just anywhere he has some extra storage. Inevitably, as they would, seven bodies under the floorboards are not only putting out an absolutely horrific smell, Mm -hmm. but there's thousands of bugs and insects and Infesting his whole space. So after going a few months of trying different deodorants um, and spraying insecticides on the bodies twice a day, he worries that the stench is becoming too much for his neighbors 
and needs to find a way to dispose of him. So, like, how is this smell not bothering you? Yeah. He just enjoys it. He's used to it at this point. Gross. His Honestly, his nose is probably, like, burnt. So, it's now the late 1980s, and in the beginning of October, he finds his way to dispose of them. What he does is dissect the bodies of each of his victims and burn them in a bonfire. So he actually made like a little waste grounds in the backyard of his apartment building. And he put an old car tire on top of all the bodies to mask the smell. And he lit it up. And if this could not get any worse, the neighborhood children actually came around to sit and watch the bonfire with him. And nobody suspected a thing. No. Nobody knew. Oh my god. He had little kids in the neighborhood smell, like burnt something. Going that's... there to look at the big bonfire. But that's oh. why the tire was there. It's to mask, mask the, the smell. smell. That's true. You wouldn't think that stink. it would though, but like ew. But tires have like a really distinct smell when they burn. But so do bodies. Like <laughs> Yeah. That's been rotting in here. Yeah. Baseboards? I think oh so. My god. And Gross. were they just like out? Uh yeah. Just like bodies. She did that at nighttime put a tire on top, lit it up, and when people started noticing the fire, that's when they all came over and just, like, hung out with him. Wow. Those marshmallows. Oh, God, I hope they, I really hope Imagine. they didn't. I really hope they didn't. Oh, my God, that's disgusting. If I was a child there, I'd be I think I would, like, barf every day just life. thinking about yeah. that. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, so by... April 1981, so five months after this bonfire, Nielsen had lured and murdered another four victims in his flat, again, keeping the bodies under the floorboards. In May, so a month later, he went back underneath the floorboards to dissect several of the bodies, took out their organs, their hearts, and their smaller bones, and he would even boil the heads, hands, and feet to remove all the flesh off of them. So now it's the mid end of 1981 and Nielsen's landlord had asked him to vacate the property because he wanted to do some renovations. So he wanted to kick all of his tenants out and renovate the place. After some back and forth between the landlord and Nielsen, he agreed to move out, but not before taking one more victim. It was September 17th, and Malcolm Barlow was sitting on the ground, resting against the wall of Nielsen's apartment building. Nielsen, intrigued, went up to Malcolm and asked what he was doing, and was informed that he, a 23-year-old boy, actually had epilepsy, and the medication that he was on had caused his legs to weaken so he couldn't walk. In a quite unexpected fashion, Nielsen felt for Malcolm and actually told him that he needed to get to a hospital immediately. He helped him up, supported him to walk into his flat, and called for an ambulance to come and save his life. So the ambulance came and picked him up, and off he went. But why the change of thought, though? Why not just bring him in for a drink, like all the other ones? Interesting. I mean, so he lived. Oh. Sadly, this would not be the happy ending for Malcolm. The next day, being so grateful, he actually went back to his flat to thank him. No! 
A surprise Nelson invited him in for dinner and drinks. Of course. I mean, that's his motto. I'm sure you know where this is going. The two of them had dinner, began drinking rum and cokes, and then Malcolm fell asleep on the sofa. Which is when Nelson took this opportunity to strangle him to death before again bathing his dead body and stowing him under the kitchen cabinets. That's that one is like so much worse. So fucked up. Obviously, when like you agree to go get a drink at someone's house, you obviously don't expect you know there's a risk, but there is a risk to it. But for this, like he helped him out of a tough situation, and this guy just wanted to go and say thank you. Nope. So sad. That's so sad. Yeah. So not even a month later, Nilsson held his third and final bonfire at Melrose Avenue. He burned the dismembered bodies, not forgetting to include the old car tire, and went on his way. He moved into Cranley Gardens, but despite the name, he had no access to a garden here, which meant no more bonfires, and he was now in the absolute top unit of his flat, and he couldn't use his floorboards either. The first few months living here, Nelson took no victims. He had many acquaintances that he met and lured into his flat, but none of them were actually assaulted in any manner. But we all know this is not how his story ends. Nelson went on to kill another three men in this home, and another whom he attempted to murder but could not. This man is Carl Stodder, a true survivor. The fateful meeting between Nelson and Carl Stodder occurred in May of 1982, Carl, a young man who was down on his luck and homeless, caught Nilsson's attention in a vulnerable state. Nilsson, who had again lured Carl back to his apartment with promises of shelter and warmth. Little did Carl know that he was walking into a horrifying nightmare. Back at Nilsson's flat, Carl drank the night away before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled with Dennis Nilsson atop of him, loudly whispering, Stay still. Oh my god. Traumatizing. Carl, being the good man he was, at first thought that Nilsson was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag, and he was floating in and out of consciousness because he was being choked. Oh, yeah. Oh my god. He then passed out and was reawakened to the sound of water running and then realized he was being submerged in and out of the water and that Nelson was trying to drown him. Oh. Imagine being in that state, though. Yeah. Like, not knowing. So scary. Yeah. And he thought that he was trying to save him at first. Like, he thought that he got drunk and got caught oh. in the zipper mm. and that he was trying to save him. After fighting so hard just to raise his head above the water, Carl was able to gasp the words, No more, please, no more. But Nelson again submerged Stoddard's head under the water. Believing he had killed him, Nelson took his dead body into his armchair while his mongrel dog, Bleep, licked Carl's face all over. Like he thought he was dead and he was just letting his dog lick his face. Ugh, that's disgusting. So he had a dog this whole time also? Yeah. I'll show you a picture of him after. Oh, God. It was then that Nilsson realized that Carl was still barely alive. He then started rubbing all over his limbs and his heart to increase the circulation. 
covered his body in blankets and laid him in his bed. So he was trying to, like, revive him. He realized that he was still alive, so he tried to bring him back to life fully. Oh, my God. But why? That's what, like, sicko. When Carl finally regained consciousness, Nilsson started hugging him and explained to him that he had almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and that Nilsson was the hero who had resuscitated him. Oh, so he likes... And he actually believed this for yeah. a little bit. Oh, my God. And he likes to have, like, that hero complex. Yeah. Mm. Over the next 48 hours, Carl's daughter found himself drifting in and out of consciousness in Nelson's apartment after the horrific night he spent being in and out of the water. When he finally got enough strength, he mustered the courage to question Dennis Nelson about the strangulation and being put into cold water. He craftily explained to him that he had become entangled in the sleeping bag zipper during a nightmare and Nelson took him into the cold water at an attempt to recover him from the shock. Oh, my God. So he actually convinced this guy for a little while that he was, like, a hero. With his manipulative charm, Nelson then accompanied Stoddard to a nearby railway station where he insinuated the possibility that they may meet again in the future. After this unsettling parting, Stoddard was left to grapple with the traumatic events he had experienced at the hands of Dennis Nelson unaware that he had narrowly escaped becoming one of his many victims. Like, imagine after you find out all this, how even more scary that whole night becomes. Mm-hmm, like, exactly. And that it was a serial killer and one of the yeah. worst yeah. in yeah. the UK. Like, that's insane. Yeah. So, other than him, sadly, he had succeeded in killing a total of three other men in this apartment, and being strapped for ways to dispose of the bodies, he resorted to taking them out from the the cabinets, laying them out on his kitchen table, and cutting them up into little pieces and flushing them down his toilet. So, he says he has a theory, oh, people take their dead goldfish and flush them down the toilet all the time. Like, if I make it the size of a goldfish, I'll be fine. How many times do you have to cut the body? And I'm sorry, but nobody's flushing 500 goldfish down the toilet in one night. So, I have a question for you guys. Oh, no. If you were a murderer, and you knew you were disposing of dead bodies by cutting them up and flushing them down your toilet, might you be surprised when you find out that you start having plumbing issues? You wouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> Just as a thought, now say that maybe you were surprised by these plumbing issues. Might you take this a step further and actually complain to your apartment building about the plumbing and demand that a plumber come and check it out? No, I'd try to solve it myself if I'm a murderer. Exactly. But... Like, how stupid. <sighs> Well, this, Kelsey, was Dennis Nielsen's fatal flaw. In February of 1983, Nielsen wrote a formal letter of complaint to the Uh estate agents complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked and that the situation for himself and other tenants at the property was inhabitable. What an idiot. (laughs) Are you he's, stupid? He's the one that made it inhabitable. Exactly. Like, why? What why? Idiot. But, I mean, good for the I law know. enforcement because yeah. they caught him this way. Yeah. <laughs> so, as any estate agent would do, they called a plumber. 
Enter Michael Catron, a plumber from Dino Rod. So it's the 8th of February, 1983, right around dinner time. The sun is setting and Michael Catron responds to what he once thought would be his typical plumbing job. He arrives on site and opens up a drain cover at the side of the house, hoping to clear out some debris and move on with his day. Imagine the horror oh. when Michael discovers that the drain is packed full to the brim with a flesh-like substance and lots of small pieces of bone. To the brim. Like that thing was full. Immediately suspicious, he calls his supervisor to inform him of the situation. Now remember, he got there just around dinner time. So like he's already weirded out and him and his supervisor decide to come back the next morning and finish off this inspection. Michael packs up his kit and is about to head out when he runs into Nilsson and another tenant where he begins discussing with them how similar the substance he found in the drain looked to human flesh. Nilsson replies, Hmm, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. What? How? No. Like, shocked. Think of something else. Shocked. So the next day at 7.30 a.m., bright and early, Michael and his supervisor returned to the property only to find that the drain had been completely cleared. He waited for them to leave and cleared it out himself. So he called on himself, basically. Yeah. And then... And when they found the problem, he fixed the problem himself. Like, why didn't you just do that the first time? Mm -hmm. So, immediately, they knew something is horribly wrong, and they call the police right away. They're like, there's flesh here, and now it's gone. Something something really wrong is up, which I don't know why they didn't call the night before, but... So while this is going on, Nilsson is back at work and probably so happy that he thinks he got away with it. Like, he escaped this this time of maybe getting caught. But back at Cranley Gardens, the police have arrived alongside the two plumbers, and they're starting to dig out more bones and flesh that are further down the drain that, like, the arms couldn't reach. Later that night... Police get word that the flesh and bones that they had sent to the lab earlier in the day was, in fact, human remains. They find out from the owners of the apartment building who owns the apartment that connects to the top drain and see the name Dennis Nielsen. They head straight back to Nielsen's home and wait outside until he returns from work. So picture this. You're Dennis Nielsen. You get home from work and three police officers start asking you, about the issues with the drain. So you decide to ask, oh, are you guys health inspectors? How? The the police officers that are in police uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. Are they health inspectors? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, adds up. So they, they then follow him back into his apartment where they're immediately smacked with the odor of rotting flesh. And the police just straight up told him, like, we know that the substance in the drain is human flesh and we know it's coming from your apartment. Mm Mm-hmm. At first, he tries to act surprised, but the lead detective isn't buying it and demands to know where the rest of the body is. So, Nelson's like, oh, I have no idea. Like, how sad. That's horrible. And the detective's like, look, where's the rest of the body? Like, mm-hmm. they thought it was only one. 
So Nielsen calmly responds to them, and this is written down in the police officer's note. It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest, not here at the police station. So he wants to admit that he's been doing this for a while. Yeah, he wants to brag about it. Ugh. So obviously he's arrested for murder. Mm-hmm. One count. Oh, God. While en route to the police station, Nielsen was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to only one person or two. Staring out of the window of the police car, he replies, 15 or 16, <gasps> since 1978. Oh, my God. They had no idea. They would have never known. They had no idea. The remains in the drain weren't of the whole thing. Yeah, Yeah, and all the other ones that were burned. And it wasn't even that apartment. It was another one before. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was just like, oh, you thought. Yeah, he just was so ready to tell. Yeah. Like, he was like, okay, I'm doing this. Because he's ready. Like, he's done. He's done. So after being arrested over the next while, Nielsen spills all the details to police. He was even drawing sketches, which you can find on the internet, of like the bodies in the kitchen cabinets, like how they looked when he would lay them out in the bed, like full-on detailed drawings. He even at one point said he had killed over a hundred people, but they think that he's just like bragging at this yeah. point because they've Gloating only been able to like fully get stories for I think sixteen. So he was brought to trial on the 24th of October, 1983, and charged officially with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. And that is the story of Dennis Nielsen. Wow. Where is he today? He's dead. He died in 2018. Oh, good. Let me just quickly read the names of the victims. So, in order, Stephen Holmes, Andrew Ho, Kenneth Ockton... Martin Duffy, William David Sutherland, Malcolm Barlow, Paul Nobbs, John Howlett, Carl Stodder, Grams Allen, and Stephen Sinclair. And those are only the ones that they have identified and been able to track down. Wow. Mm. It's just the fact that he got caught was for me. His own doing. Exactly. So that's why he's like, no, it's time for me to tell the truth and what had happened. And he, like, you can watch documentaries about this guy. He goes into, like, excruciating detail, and some of the things that he says, like, I don't even want to say on the podcast, because mm-hmm. they're so sick and twisted. Like, he's an evil, evil person. Did he sound happy that he was yeah, doing Yeah, like, bragging. Like, Ugh. And it's so crazy that, like, he was actually willing to tell. Because, yeah. like, a lot of people are, like, they don't want to say it because yeah. they also don't want to get in trouble for all the other mm-hmm. bodies. Or they maybe feel a single ounce of remorse or guilt yeah, that they something. don't want to admit to it. Yeah, but this guy was just like, no, I'll give you all the details. Yeah. He like, was waiting. I bet you he was just waiting for someone that he could tell all the details to, to like, brag about it. Like, yeah. the thing that makes me sad is that they probably get off on the yeah. whole telling something yeah. about it and seeing you be disgusted you know yeah like you didn't catch me earlier. yeah and yeah that's why. okay <laughs> based on everything mm-hmm. that you have heard tell me what you think he looks like kelsey i'll start with you okay this one tough because i always think like if they were able to bring like people home they have to not look like a serial killer that's actually a good because point. if you had just like said like if I didn't know that he had brought these people home and I just knew what they did what he did with the bodies or whatever I would say like he looks like a serial killer probably like 
balding, only has hair like around his head, glasses, ugly glasses. That's, okay. That's my vision. Okay. But if he brought people home, he has to look kind of cute. So now I'm like, okay, maybe there is hair. Still glasses, though. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking Ted Bundy kind of look because it was set in the 70s. Okay, so, like, long guess. hair, good body, good looks. So, like, you think this man is foin. So, yeah. you think Ted Bundy was good looking? No, 100% no. If he's taking all these people back home, mm-hmm. and, like, yeah, let's go for a drink. True, and everyone's yeah, agreeing. Suspicious. Exactly. Okay. Okay, I want everyone listening to go on to Google and look this guy up. Pause while you do that. I'll give you a second. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. <laughs> Not even what I pictured. <laughs> I, Kelsey, I you were on that. Yeah. You were so close. Like, the hair's there. I said oh. ugly glasses. Yeah. And like maybe in, I'm picturing like UK in the 70s. Like I'm, I don't know why, but I know this is a little bit farther back, but Peaky Blinders, like he's kind of giving mm-hmm. me like lead in like a 70s uh, movie. But like he still gives me serious Creepy vibes. vibes. Yeah. Definitely like, creepy if vibes. If I saw him, I'd be scared. I wouldn't yeah. think like, Whereas yeah, Rex, I'll go to your apartment. Wasn't giving me yeah, creepy wow. vibes. I guess you can't be that vile of a human and not look a little evil. Like, this guy looks a little yeah. evil. But, like, why would you go evil. home with someone like that? I would not want That's to. That's something we never understood. Maybe he looked better. Did, yeah, probably. Because this started, like, ten years yeah. worth. So he's aged. Sicko. <laughs> so because this is a special case, we also have a picture of his dog. Oh. Do we want to see him? Yes. I'm... And I'm sorry, but when I look at this photo, I just imagine him licking the face yeah. of poor Carl Stodder. Like, is the dog still alive? I don't think so. No, it's unless he's yes. like forty years old. <laughs> look at him. Oh, looks like serial killer. Yeah, <laughs> he's like a little rusty yeah. little guy. He looks a little rough around the edges. Yeah, poor guy's but, probably seen so much. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And one little word from our guest today. Thanks for joining. Giselle, how do you feel leaving this little podcast room? Very interesting. I was very nervous to actually come on because you guys forced me to. I feel like she should have come for the first episode, yeah. maybe. Probably, but when I watched, like, Jeffrey Dahmer and then the Ted Bundy series on Netflix, I was very interested on, like, being on your podcast. So thank you very much for having me on. Well, hopefully of we'll course. have you back for a little bit more of a, I don't want to say chill murder, but <laughs> a bit less gruesome maybe. Yeah. I don't think any murder is chill, yeah. but. Well, that was our episode, friends. So if you're hearing this message now, then you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I'm going to be really annoying, but please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please share this episode with others who you think may be interested in this topic. Also, feel free to let us know what other murder stories you'd want us to discuss on the show and to see covered in future episodes. And go check us out on Instagram because we post clips from our podcast and we want to hear what you guys think about our questions in the comments. Our Instagram is at closinginpod. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you next time for episode number three. Bye! Bye.